Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm Polina Ivanova. Today we're talking with Nicolas Trapanier. Uh, he's recently published a book called Foodways and Daily Life in Medieval Anatolia, published in 2014 with the University of Texas Press. And our listeners probably know that Medieval Anatolia is known as a period of transition from the Byzantine world to a variety of Muslim polities. Uh, but I think as our guest will talk about it's not just a moment of political transition or religious transition, but also um, a moment that can be explored through daily life and practices, especially what people ate. Welcome to the podcast, Nicola. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I think this this podcast is really becoming a, a really important meeting point for people who are interested in Ottoman history. So I, I feel privileged to be part of it. Uh, so let's just start with this question. Why food? Why why is this the kind of prism that we want to look at uh, medieval Anatolia through? Well, I think that to, to answer a question like that, uh, you have to take a step back and ask, why is it that you're doing history in the first place? And every historian has a different answer to that question. In my case, I'm doing history because I'm interested in uh time periods as spaces where very different cultures existed. So it's a kind of intercultural discovery, if you will. Uh, so I was interested in in society, uh, social life, in, in culture, and more than anything else, uh, exploring the ways in which people saw the world during, during that time period. Obviously, this is a very abstract and broad topic. And I needed to find a specific angle to take on it. And so uh, when I started looking into it, when I started looking into the sources, it became relatively quickly clear that food allows you to look at pretty much every aspect of, of human life, especially in a, in, in a time mm-hmm. period like that. Can we just take one example? Well, okay, so, so I mean, when we think about food normally, we obviously think about eating, uh, but it goes far beyond that. I mean, if you take a time period like, like the Middle Ages, most people living back then, professionally, what they were doing all day was essentially to produce food. I mean, mm-hmm. most people in the population were farmers or, or pastoralists or something like that. So... If you're saying that you're talking, quote-unquote, only about food, you're also talking about the professional activities of people, for Mm -hmm. example. Uh, A world of production and consumption. So there's the production, there's the consumption, and then you can go into the more more symbolic uh, components of food, for example, uh, in relation to religion. I mean, we think about religion as... uh, sometimes as, as something that's written in the books and that's, you know, prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, the way that people on the ground practice their religion is a lot more complex than what the book tells them to, right. to, to do. And so uh, food can, the way that they deal with food, the way that they, for example, uh, whether or not they drink wine and why they would drink wine or not, because wine is forbidden uh, in theory in Islam, that's going to give you a sense of, of their relationship with the theory of religion, if mm-hmm. you will. Nicolai, you've mentioned wine, and perhaps this will give us now an opportunity to get into our context, that of medieval Anatolia. We know that this was a period of great cultural change. So did food practices, practices of both uh, producing food, consuming food, 
of course, drinking wine or not drinking wine, to what extent this changed over the period that you were looking at? I think this is a very good example of, uh, of a case where if you look at food, uh, you're going to have a more complex and more uh, nuanced picture than if you look only at prescriptive sources, if you look only at what people should be doing, in this case, about religion. So, for example... In theory, according to the theology, Christians are allowed to drink wine mm-hmm. and Muslims are not allowed. In practice, uh, based on what I found while doing research, uh, one thing that struck me is that, well, first of all, uh, Muslim rulers were clearly drinking wine. I mean, mm-hmm. there's not only that, but for some of them, that was kind of the center of their life, essentially. Right. Uh, so that's one aspect. But the other, the, the flip side of that is that Wine was probably a fairly expensive product to purchase. And it looks like, as far as I can tell, uh, people from the lower classes, be they Muslim or Christian, were not drinking wine, not so much for ideological, religious reasons, but rather because they just could not afford it Mm -hmm. to begin with. So here you have a case where you look at it from the outside and and you assume, okay, Christians on one side, Muslims on the other side, and they're divided by it because one group drinks wine, the other doesn't. But in practice, it was more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can get a little bit also into geographical specificity here because you looked at all of uh, medieval Anatolia. What made wine expensive? Was wine no longer produced in certain areas of Asia Minor and needed to be imported? Do you have any idea of why it would have become expensive? What do we know about how wine was grown, where it was grown? There's there's a lot of uh, of extrapolation in there. I mean, the idea of doing social history for that time period requires a lot of guesswork, and so this is a typical case of that. But I would say that uh, one fundamental element is that first of all, uh, grapes can be consumed directly, so there's a right. competing market for 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 the product. The other thing is that we see very often that uh, gardens or orchards or vineyards, which you know to some extent were more or less the same uh, the same spaces, uh, what was produced in there, the fruits that were produced in there, including grapes, uh, were considered to be uh, luxury products or very valuable. So because of that, I mean, this is uh, this is essentially, you know, the, the, the kind of hints that I draw mm-hmm. from, you know, you don't have access to um, to accounting documents or taxation documents that would be that would tell us, you know, the, the, the monetary value of various uh, products. So what you're saying and that it's quite difficult to kind of figure out uh, specific areas that were or were not growing uh, uh, vineyards for wine cultivation, or I mean, how d- is it possible to get at that level of specificity at the moment? But, I mean, we have a couple of hints. We have a couple of hints, for example, uh, that uh, that there were certain there were uh, uh, gardens and vineyards around uh, the larger cities. We have uh, a mention in Al Umari, for example. I think it's a pomegranate that was grown around Kutaya, if I remember well. Uh, or somewhere in, in Western mm-hmm. Anatolia, anyways, w- that was used to make a kind of pomegranate wine also. So you have specific places associated uh, like that. Uh, 
there's also the fact that, uh, you know, you have passing references here and there, uh, one in which uh, a character in a hagiography mentions that he's going to go to the Jewish neighborhood to buy wine, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, you also have um, uh, hints in the form of simply who you see drinking wine in various anecdotes. And you, I mean, you can find anecdotes that involve people from the lower classes, but those that, that, uh, that involve wine typically uh, happen to, to take place in the palace or among richer people. Mm-hmm. It seems that what you're saying is that uh, production of food was often very local, that it wasn't uh, kind of larger distributive markets. There were there are a couple of ex- exceptions to that, but in generally, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, transportation was uh, was expensive. It was difficult. Uh, generally, when you see grain being transported, generally it's to the next town or something like that. The one major exception uh, that that you see is uh, in Western Anatolia, you do have uh, dried fruits and vegetables that are being traded with uh, the Venetians in the in what today are the, the Greek islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have like higher um, higher priced, more luxury goods that are being traded. But as far as most of what people were eating, it 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 was definitely mostly local. Yeah. Another example that comes to mind, of course, along with wine that um, is in theory, prohibited in Islam is, of course, pork. Um, do you see consumption of pork dropping following the conquests? Is there any evidence of that? One of the things that you see in the archaeological record is that people who uh, do, for example, uh, the study of, of animal bones that are being uh, uncovered, uh, you see changes in pattern that are very, very gradual going for centuries, if not millennia, actually. The same place will produce, maybe the, the proportion will change, but generally it's going to be more or less the same animals that will be uh, that will be raised and, and consumed. And the one big exception and a very telling one is starting around the 11th century, you see uh, layers, archaeological layers that basically were pig bones almost completely disappear uh, in some places. In other villages, it continues. And so from that, we can assume that there might be a division in the in the conventional mm. uh, population, the distribution of people. Yeah. So to rephrase this, is that what you were just saying? Do we see this more in cities? It's uh, in cities. It's almost impossible to to have any archaeological record of food mm-hmm. in 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 the city environments. I mean, generally speaking, I mean things get dug up all the time for new constructions, uh, and that's why also it's very difficult to to track what's going on in urban gardens uh, because of that. I mean, it's you know if you go to a countryside. To, to, to a site that's been abandoned, then you have a kind of a very clear demarcation and you can tell, you know, everything that's here is before that date. But in the city, it's very, very difficult. So what we have here is two examples, uh, one of wine and the other of pork, in which we can uh, see to some degree a transition of culture, a transition of the people. In the case of wine, it seems that uh, both Muslims and Christians actually didn't consume wine on the daily common person level. Whereas in pork, you do kind of you can see in the archaeological record a shift, possibly between 
Christian villages possibly being converted or moving into Muslim villages and no longer consuming pork. The difference is very, very clear in in pig and not so much in in wine. That's that's the case. Yeah. So outside of these two kind of major food kind of symbolic food categories, wine, pork, uh, what was the daily diet of someone in Anatolia? Are we able to figure that out? Did that differ from region to region, confession to confession, or is it a kind of a shared world? Because a friend of mine uh, basically suggested that people were just eating, all they were eating in Anatolia was bread and yogurt for most of their diet. Is this an accurate description? <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't claim that they were eating only bread and yogurt, but bread and yogurt were definitely very important. Bread and yogurt, to some extent, cheese. Uh, you see uh, dairy being a very important part of the diet, but transformed dairy, not not milk. Milk was something that only babies would uh, would drink. You have uh, a couple of references to uh, stews, soups, mm-hmm. and, and and things like that. One thing that you don't see, and I don't know if it's because it's not documented, or or if it's uh, if it's because they were not uh, cooking that way. But uh, fried stuff doesn't seem to hmm. be. Uh, part of of the diet you don't see it in the written record and you don't see it in the archaeological record either do you think that's because of let's say a an inversion of that technique or the availability of oil or the oil was was available oil and butter they they used regularly they they consumed it with uh, with bread for sure and that was considered to be kind of uh, a, a little luxury that ever most Almost everybody could afford, mm-hmm. but that you know it was still in, in in limited amounts. And by all you mean olive oil? Probably olive oil, yes. But uh, th- one of the problems with that is that very often you have words like uh, like uh, yeah, which could be mm-hmm. could mean butter, butter or, or could mean oil. Uh, I mean, you do have a number of uh, of anecdotes in which you see. Whatever yeah was uh, to be uh, to be in liquid form, so probably oil, probably olive oil for sure. There's also uh, references both in textual and archaeological record to um, presses, oil presses that are very often located close to places where you have um, olive groves. So yeah, there's very good reasons to believe that olive oil was was part of the picture. But does this daily world of food, kind of these uh, small objects like bread, yogurt, butter, does this also uh, enter into kind of have symbolic value in the sources you look at? Do these so do these food items enter into the hagiographies as well? One of one of the things with the kind of sources that I'm using is that uh, probably the most useful sources are hagiographies, so lives of saints and. These are not texts that, you know, so I'm talking about saints, I'm talking about people like like Rumi, like Hajibek Tashvili, so uh, Muslim figures who mm-hmm. are reputed to have uh, made miracles and mm-hmm. things like that. And the way that their stories are being told in those texts is not like modern biographies where you have one flowing text beginning with their birth and ending with their death. It's mostly a series of, of anecdotes. And very often those anecdotes will start in a very kind of mundane type of setting 
that could be a meal, for example. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you'll have, you know, the the the, the disciples of Rumi uh, being sitting in a garden and chatting with each other, and all of a sudden, there's another disciple that comes in and he brings a fig to to his master, mm-hmm. and uh, and then what the master does with it is that he realizes that there's a pit in the fig. Now, obviously, there's no pit in figs right so and uh, and and th- the whole story here is about the fact that he was what he means by that what Rumi means by there's a pit in a fig is that the fig it turns out that Rumi miraculously figures out that the guy actually stole it uh, and <laughs> Wait, when how does that how did those two things go together so Rumi figures out that there's something wrong with with, uh, with the fig he says there's a pit in it whether or not there was one is, you know, we'll we'll leave it to the listeners to decide. <laughs> but I mean, it, this is definitely, you know, a, a, an example of his power of perception that there was something morally wrong with this particular, with this particular thing. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning that here is that later on, the 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 disciple who brought it goes back, gets it legitimately, gets a proper fig that he paid for. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he does that, then suddenly Rumi uh, tastes it. He says it tastes very good. And then he starts distributing it to his other disciples. And from that, you know, it's one of those anecdotes where the reason why it was written down was to prove that Rumi was, had such a, a penetrating uh, power of, of spiritual understanding that he could, you know, see through a, an object like that mm-hmm. but for my own purposes what i'm interested in the, is the fact that it seems to have been typical that a disciple would bring mm-hmm. objects like that fruit or or other luxurious uh, food items to his uh, to his master and then the master would taste it and then after that uh, it would be distributed to other other people in the attendance so you know the structure of those sources is such that even though the authors didn't mean to in, in, integrate that kind of information, I, it ends up being the most useful for me. Just a small follow-up question. So in a situation like that, would you read the fig as a sort of daily food or is it a special food that is kind of given to the master? Well, this is something that, that you have to put it in relation to other anecdotes. And there's one other anecdote where you see another disciple bringing food to, to Rumi. But th- in that case... Uh, it's uh, a guy who's uh, described as a Turk. And in this particular case, very clearly that means a lower class, uneducated person. Uh, and uh, and that Turk brings lentils to Rumi and everybody makes fun of him for that. <laughs> so you can tell based on mm-hmm. the, the comparison of the two anecdotes that it needed to be something that was valuable. You know, if you brought very cheap food uh, that was not, considered to be proper yeah. mm-hmm. so which uh, foods were considered uh, luxury i mean fruits definitely fresh fruits uh, were there uh, sweets also whatever involved sugar in in one way or another uh, and honey uh, definitely are part of upper class meals in a way that they're not uh, elsewhere 
and also a, a category of food that was considered to be exceptional was food that w- food that was considered to be quote unquote pure by which i mean you know bread that didn't have rocks in it essentially <laughs> you know or, or or dairy products that hadn't turned bad you know that that kind of stuff uh i mean there was definitely uh a difference in standards in 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 the quality of the, the very same food items between mm-hmm. uh, social classes. Was this emphasis on purity just for uh, the sake of quality, or did it have a kind of I don't know spiritual or symbolic dimension as well? Or I think that it was first and foremost. If you don't want rocks in your bread, it's first and foremost because it's better for your teeth. Uh, and and the, the, the reason I'm saying that spiritual aspects were less important in that is that there is a common trait in at least certain groups, including the Mevlevi, so the followers of Rumi, uh, that, uh, that considered to be f- that considered foods and especially the higher quality foods to be bad for your soul. Essentially, mm. you know, they were ascetic. They were depriving themselves of, of uh, food, water, and uh, and uh, and sleep. And so for them, you know, spiritually, you were much better off with something like barley bread, which was considered to be tasting very bad. But uh, because of that, precisely because it was not, enjoyable to eat it was better for your soul you know and how common were these fasting practices how different were they from fasting that we know of today what were the different occasions when one would fast well obviously i mean you you see at least people in the upper classes practicing the the fast of ramadan in the way that that we know it today uh, whether or not that extended to the lower classes is much less obvious to me. Uh, however, you also have fasting that takes place in a different type of way among certain groups. You have groups like the Mevlevi and uh, to a much greater extent mm-hmm. also groups like the, the Kalender uh, dervishes that were essentially uh, extreme ascetics, uh, that that would renounce the world, that would inflict punishments on themselves. Uh, and one of the ways in which they did that was fasting. And it looks like when they were fasting, uh, sometimes that involved fasting 24 hours a day for, for several days. You know, so unlike the modern fast of Ramadan that, you know, you can eat at night. So it seems like that there's both that there are different practices of fasting, but also the fasting has a different meaning in a society in which food is so radically different from our own. Can you maybe ex- expand on kind of the meaning of fasting, the different, like what, what were people trying, what did it mean to fast uh, in a place where food was much less available or much less diverse? I think, I think that uh, one of the, 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 the striking elements here is that not everybody understood it in the same way. Uh, not only that, but I think that fasting was actually a point of contention. Hmm. You have uh, very good hints in the sources, for example, that Rumi and his followers were considered to be socially improper by a lot of the Muslim elite because they were fasting too much by the standards of mm-hmm. uh, of other Muslims. Uh, you And that 
probably that associated them with the calendar dervishes. So it's a little bit like uh, the, the the example that uh, I could uh, draw from modern experience uh, to, to, to parallel that. It's a little bit like uh, the example of T- Timothy Leary, who was doing LSD with, with his students at Harvard. I mean, there is, uh, and that was in the 1960s, and that basically was a clash between what the Harvard professor should be doing and the, ex- the social expectations mm-hmm. versus the association that this created between him and the hippies. And mm-hmm. in a way, you know, the, the calendar dervishes were very much the medieval equivalent of the hippies. I mean, they were rejecting the world and they were uh, they were uh, basically actively trying to be rejected by society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Antinomian as they... Yeah. So, so in that sense, I think that fasting was used by certain groups at least to, uh, to go against the norms of society. Mm-hmm. And did anyone use eating and food to go against the norms of society in the same way? Well, I mean, there is one, uh, there's very clearly one uh, case, which is uh, eating, the eating of hashish, actually, that was used, I think, probably by the same groups who were doing the extreme fasting, kind of ironically. Um, and uh, and that was associated, that was considered to be very lowbrow and inappropriate. And I think that certain groups of uh, of dervishes were definitely engaging in, engaging in that precisely because that was uh, th- that was something mm-hmm. that was frowned upon. Okay, so at that point, I mean, how was hashish consumed? Because today we think of it as something smoked. I'm presuming at that point, bang hashish was uh, boiled and drank. Uh, exactly how it was uh, transformed for consumption is, is not described in mm-hmm. any of the sources that I've seen. But uh, you see cases of, I mean, you have the example of Ibn Battuta, for example. Uh, one of the things, so Ibn Battuta comes to Anatolia in one of the very few general judgments that he passes on the region's Muslims as a whole is they're really good Muslims, except that women don't wear the veil and they they eat hashish and they don't care about it. <laughs> um, so so that's that's one element. And later on in his narrative, he also uh, describes his experience of seeing somebody who was actually using a spoon and drawing some powder from a, from, from a pouch or something like that. Uh, and that and later on, he learned that this was hashish. So so you see it in in that uh, in that source, and it looks like they were. Uh, they were probably yeah using some kind of powder form, so not mm-hmm. not uh, as a resin, but as a as a powder. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. Our guest today is Nicolas Trepanier. Uh, who is speaking to us about food and foodways in medieval Anatolia. So, Nicola, why don't we speak a little bit more now about food and taxation and food as a way of understanding the relationship between the state and the society? Well, it looks like, uh, if you want to reduce it to that, most of the contacts that ordinary people had with the state actually 
took the shape of food in one way or another because essentially taxation was a collection of part of the crops so uh, so you see a number of scenes where where uh, you have the tax collector come in and obviously i mean there's all sorts of tricks in order to hide what was been uh, what was produced and things like that uh, so uh, and and when you look at it that way and when you look at other cases of points of contact with uh, with the state for example when an army goes through the the region and basically plunders the region to to feed itself uh you realize that uh the way in which at the very least concrete and direct contacts between ordinary mm-hmm. people in the state happened uh i mean they might have been significant moments they might have been uh, shaping a lot of the material uh, well-being of uh, of people, but they were not uh, contacts that were constant. I mean, these were things that would happen once a year, maybe mm-hmm. a couple of times a year if there's an army passing by. But um, but the, the place of the the state is is very small in the in the lives of people, and not only that. But if you think of a time period like the 14th century in Anatolia, it's a time period that most people, when they talk about it, they talk about it as the Beylik period, Mm -hmm. because this is a time period where, so the Seljuk rule has collapsed, has been taken over by the Mongols, who themselves, the Ilkhanid Mongols, have their empire has collapsed. And at that point, you have a kind of political fragmentation of, uh, of the region. And one of the little states that that pops up at that point will become the Ottoman Empire. And so when people think about that time period, they see the politics as being kind of the defining element of it. And one of the things that I found really striking in in my research is how little difference that seems to have made Mm -hmm. on people's lives. I mean, it makes a difference if you have 100,000 horses going through your field and you can't cultivate it ever again. But uh, whether this is, it is the Jandar Beylik or the Germian Beylik who's ta- collecting taxes on you, it's essentially a guy who comes in to your village once a year and takes away your stuff. <laughs> Much like today. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so were these Beyliks of the 14th century able to efficiently tax food production and have any kind of control not only over production but also over food exchanges for instance do you see any evidence of um, price regulations or control over local markets where food was exchanged right and was was this exchange done in kind or in uh, uh, cash Okay, so you see definitely a growing sophistication uh, over time, and that makes me believe that you know the, the narrative that we think about, uh, the classic narrative of the, the Beylik period is basically there was uh, a political vacuum, and these guys came into power in order to establish their own state. And the impression that I have based on the angle that I've taken was that it's much more a question of local authorities, uh, very often uh, town leadership mm-hmm. that essentially continued after the, the, the Mongols went away and gradually realized that if there's nobody above them, well, maybe they can start 
doing things that other state would. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see that among other things in the the titles that they give themselves. You know, there's there's a very gradual but very clear pattern of uh, of uh, those leaders calling themselves either emir or bey at the beginning and eventually uh, using the word sultan you you have a pattern in coins of of using uh, copies of coins from other states especially the the seljuk ilkhanid sometimes byzantine and eventually putting their own name on, on the coins now, concretely, in terms of food, uh, you see a number of anecdotes where uh, where those states are beginning to kind of f- figure out how to to collect the taxes. You have there's a famous anecdote in uh, in Ashok Pashazadeh about the early Ottomans uh, being shocked at the fact that you can actually collect taxes on on market uh market market transaction obviously there's a whole ideological component to that there there might be you know some manipulation of that but it seems that there was a pattern of you know stopping at some point and realize wait a minute there's nobody above me nobody to stop me from doing that maybe i can do it so you see a very specific uh, percentage of uh, of uh, tolls that are that are being taken from the from the various goods that are being traded like that. Yeah. So speaking of, uh, of Venetians and this kind of more long distance trade, um, you know, we've spoken mostly about local agricultural production. What do we know about kind of more long distance trade networks? Things like uh, pastoralists and the movement of sheep and animals, things uh, of that sort. And was food something that was indeed exchange over long distance, or, or was it one of the the fundamental uh, issues there when you're talking about long distance trade is uh, transportation, the ease of transportation, uh, the, and uh, the value of what's being transported. Mm-hmm. So that explains why uh, going from Central Anatolia. Uh, and bringing grain, which is relatively low cost, was probably not very uh, economically efficient. You see exceptions to that in Western Anatolia, which is extremely fertile. It's a really, really great place to grow uh, fruits and vegetables. And you have cases of export of uh, of uh, of fruits and, and dried fruits and vegetables, and notice that they're dried here, so that makes them easier to transport. Right. Uh, and they're also in a region where, unlike uh, the, the the Mediterranean coast or the, the the Black Sea coast, the Aegean coast, it's actually relatively easy to and relatively flat uh, in order to transport uh, various goods. The other case that you see a lot of is uh, is um, the production of sheep. And these could go very long distance. And, I mean, if you think about it, meat is, in a way, the only type of food that transports itself, right? <laughs> so, uh, so in that sense, uh, it was very efficient to, to bring you know, a flock of sheep all the way to Iran because you didn't have to to, to pay extra for the, if anything, that, that they love the muscles in the sheep. <laughs> when we began this podcast, you talked about history as a means of reflecting on another culture, of giving some sort of perspective on our own culture. Um, did you gain any insights as to our own current uh obsessions productions of food in the 21st century 
through studying medieval Anatolia? Absolutely, yes. There's there's a number of things. Uh, there's two that that immediately immediately come to mind. One is when I was talking uh, when I was working on meals just the very idea of having a meal to begin with the idea that you should eat most of the food you eat in a day in a limited number of sittings where there's a different types of food that are put together that you sit around the table Mm. with a number of people this is something that we take for granted but never question and uh, and once i started thinking about it in the context of medieval antalya it made me realize that there's a lot of reasons why they were having meals that are kind of disappearing today. And the Such idea a- of uh, the idea of having to spend a long time preparing mm-hmm. food, for example, the idea that uh, that if you're going to prepare food, you need to prepare in fairly large quantities. And if you compare that to what's happening right now essentially the 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 food production and distribution systems today are such that i mean you can eat by yourself and uh that doesn't make the make it much less efficient Uh, you can eat at whatever time you want and you see that kind of uh of uh disegregation of of uh, of food practice that are that are happening Mm -hmm. right now that if you think about the reason why the reasons why people had meals in the first place, it kind of makes sense. You know, today you can just put something in the microwave at 3 a.m. and it's you don't need somebody to prepare three hours mm-hmm. in advance for. So them. you're saying that the social aspect of meal of having a meal together is a product of the labor and material costs required. It's to definitely do that. connected. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, and and you can't talk about the the mindsets and the worldviews uh, or you can't talk about the practical aspects of food production and consumption without talking about each other mm-hmm. you know the connection is is essential so that's that's one example the other example is um, is when I was looking at the medical aspects of food consumption I mean this was a time when Galenic ideas were were the dominant idea. So the the, the notion that uh, health is the product of balance between four liquids that you have in your body, and you know that that's the reason why you know for a long time in history people were getting uh, blood drawn from them because they thought that certain illnesses were um, were the result of having too much blood mm-hmm. in comparison to other liquids. Now. This kind of way of thinking about health sounds completely stupid to us and ignorant. And we think, you know, we should never, uh, I mean, there's there's no value in that. And I was looking at what are the food implications of that. And one of the things that you see uh, very clearly in the sources is that various specific foods would have a specific influence on the balance in the body some foods were making your body quote-unquote more hot or more cold for example Mm -hmm. and so depending on which kind of illness you had the same food might make you uh, better or worse actually and if you think about that and you compare it to the way that uh, food science is presented in the um, in the in the media today and the way that people in society think about it you have cases like you know uh 
I don't know, omega tree or this kind of berry right. or some superfoods, super superfoods uh, super that that will you know you just need to eat as much as you can of it and you're gonna be super healthy. Mm-hmm. For medieval Anatolian, this way of thinking would have been completely stupid, and I'm not sure they would be wrong. <laughs> Well, I just uh, was at the grocery store the other day and I saw, um, you know, another super fruit uh, marketed to the masses. And it said, our super fruit is the Anatolian uh, mulberry, the doot. And we brought it all the way from Anatolia to help American consumers uh, feel their best and be at peak performance. Well, that's excellent for the social <laughs> in- integration of silkworms. So on this note, we will go and uh, indulge in some uh, mulberry from Anatolia. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. That was great. Um, for our listeners that would like to learn more, we'll have a short bibliography on the website. Also, check out our Facebook group where you can find uh, we have other postings of of photographs, documents, all sorts of information about the Ottoman, uh, the larger Ottoman world from the medieval period all the way to the present day. Thank you.